wisdom for life. To have a successful life, you need right relationships. And first and foremost, you need a right relationship with God. And I'm not just talking about salvation, being part of His family. That's the starting point. That is, if you would, the, the kickoff point as far as someone's life and walk uh, is concerned. But I'm talking about a walk with God that's consistent and pleasing to Him after someone gets saved. And uh, so we need to walk with God, a consistent walk with God. And then, if we're going to do that, we need wisdom from God. Uh, we need His direction. We need to know uh, how to walk and, and what way in which we can be pleasing to Him and the best way we can walk. And finally, we need a right relationship with men. And the way that we deal with people and treat people will have a great impact on how well life is lived. And all three are going to be dealt with in this chapter. Uh, we're going to be challenged about our walk with God. We're going to be challenged about wisdom. Surprise, surprise, surprise. And then we're going to be challenged about the way to be right with men and, uh, and have a right relationship with men. And all three are uh, wonderfully laid out for us in 35 verses in Proverbs chapter 3. Uh, good three-point outline then, right? You got the, uh, the a walk with God, wisdom, and, uh, and then the way that we deal with people. And we're going to look at that subject uh, tonight. At least we're going to begin because we will not get 35 verses done. I can guarantee it because I still have more to prepare and I, I'm, I've got more than enough for tonight. So the Bible says this, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of day, days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord, and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel, and marrow to thy bones. Honor the Lord with thy substance, and with the firstfruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. The first of the three subjects dealt with in this chapter are found in these 12 verses. So let's ask God to give us wisdom. Father, please open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things that are found in your law, this wonderful book, the Bible. Help us, Lord God, to have your understanding. I pray that you would uh, open our eyes and our understanding and give us a sweet time around the Word of God tonight. And may we learn the lessons we ought and be more pleasing to you and walk with you as we ought for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. It was back in 2008 when the New York Times published an article dealing with difficulties American-born Jews were having as they were moving, many of them were moving to Israel. The problem they had was proving the authenticity of their heritage. Uh, 
And in the story, uh, they were telling of one young woman who went with her fiancé to the Tel Aviv Rabbinate, because that's where you would go. It's a Jewish religious governing body in the state of Israel who takes care of these things. And she went to register to marry. So the government court asked her, uh, they said, prove you're Jewish. How do you do that? How do you prove that you are Jewish. Obviously, an American birth certificate isn't going to do it. Am I right? So, so what's that? Ancestry.com. Ancestry.com. All right. Yeah, thanks a lot. Anyway, uh, they, were, they were dealing with this problem and these things. And quite honestly, it was just very difficult in order for her to prove that. The person uh, relating the article then said this, and this is challenging, if a court of law asked you to prove you were a Christian, how would you do it? Uh, He said, some might answer, well, I'm a member of a church. Well, a court could rightly ask, how difficult is it for a non-Christian to join a church? (laughs) Churches are looking for members all over. Uh, You know, as long as you're breathing and moving in some places, You can be part of a church, so that isn't the answer. Um, Let's see. uh, There are some churches uh, so anxious to drill. He said, he wrote, for someone to join, they have a three-minute drill, and and during the invitation, they're welcomed into full fellowship, you know? Um, Then he said others appearing before the court might say, well, I've been baptized. And he asked, really? If you've been around a Christian church for any length of time, You can pick up enough church lingo to answer the questions you have to to be baptized if you want. Baptism isn't proof of Christianity. Uh, It's only proof you got wet, really. Unless one lives in a non-Christian culture, baptism can become a rite of passage instead of a a declaration of a commitment to Christ. Then there's the generic answer. You know, my parents were Christians, so I must be one. And he went on to say, the Bible says you become a Christian through personal acceptance of the gospel, not by your parents' acceptance of the gospel. So where is the proof? Could I prove in the court of law that I'm a Christian? Can you? The Bible would give us a good criteria, Would uh, at least two things. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, Jesus Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. A person uh, challenged to uh, prove that he is a Christian does so by his life. And I present before you in Proverbs chapter 3 in these first 12 verses a number of wonderful ways, if you would, that a Christian can prove he's part of the family of God. Because these things are talking about a walk with God. They all deal with the matter of a walk with God. In fact, you could put it this way, the walk of a righteous man is well described in these 12 verses. Six truths consisting of two verses each, and the writer skillfully, with God's wisdom, shares first the responsibility, the request or requirement in the, in the verse, first verse, and then reveals the reward in the second. At least he follows pretty much that idea all the way through these 12 verses. It's written in the same style, quite honestly, as the last chapter. Do you remember we had the if-then 
scenario? Well, actually, each one of these couplets, these two verses, are an if-then scenario. Except the last one, we could probably argue, isn't. But uh, these uh, things have to do with your relationship with God. And they would be a wonderful testimony if someone would look at your life that you are part of the family of God. Now, nothing you do absolutely proves that, but if you wanted to prove it in any uh, tangible way, a good way would be to start with the first 12 verses of this chapter and say, do these things, are these things evident in my life? So let's look at this walk of the righteous man. First thing we find, verses 1 and 2, we learn this truth. Obey the Lord and enjoy a full life. Obey the Lord and enjoy to enjoy a full life. So what's the responsibility? My son, forget not my law, but that let thine heart keep my commandments. The responsibility, I, I put it this way in my own little notes here, be a learner. Be a learner. In Proverbs 4, 5, the Bible says, Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Back in Proverbs chapter 1, we've, we'll have we'll probably keep making reference to this because it seems like the author comes back to the subject many times. But in chapter 1 and verse 8, we have the first real call uh, to the young man saying this, My son, hear the instruction of thy father. Forsake not the law of thy, thy mother. And so he starts in chapter 3 and says, in essence, the same thing. Forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. One writer explained the first instruction this way. The first couplet is general in character. It inculcates obedience to the precepts of the teacher and gives as reason the assurance that thereby long life and peace will be secured. True to the Old Testament conception of revelation as a law, the teacher sets obedience at the forefront of, of, uh, of living a right life. Um, in fact, someone wrote these words, too many Christians have become ob oblivious to what God has commanded in life. And that is actually what it means when he says forget not. To become oblivious to. It's no longer important. You, you don't understand that. You, you, you've, you've forgotten. You've, it's just become something. You know what a lot of people do? They go through their existence doing what they think is right, what they believe to be right, what they believe to be correct, rather than placing themselves under divine instruction and saying, God, what do you think? You know, quite honestly, we've been challenged about this a lot lately. Seems like many of the passages we've looked at in various places in Scripture, have, have you not noticed that? It just seems like many of them have been addressing the same subject. Hey, a walk with God requires obedience, re requires someone who is a learner of what God has said. Um, we have far too many in Christian ranks who are living life to please self rather than living life to please God. And so we have, my son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. But might I add that the writer takes it further than Proverbs 1.8. Look back there again. Because in Proverbs 1.8, what does he basically tell you? Okay, here, and don't forsake. What does chapter 3 and verse 1 do? What's the next step? 
Okay, forget not, which he kind of already said in chapter 1 and verse 8. What would be the next step? Okay, keep, uh, um, a trick question here, but let, look at the, the two words there after the word let. Thine heart. Um, it, is, it is easy to outwardly do but far more difficult to make sure your heart is right. Isn't that the truth? Um, Christianity sometimes can be just an outward show rather than a real inward possession, if we're honest about the matter. Um, You remember the boy who was told to take out the trash. This little guy was watching TV. Mom told him to get the trash from the kitchen taken out. Well, he was watching TV, and it's just, it was his favorite program. And taking the trash out didn't seem like an important thing to him, so he did nothing. And a short while later, Mom comes into the room and says, Young man, I told you to take the trash out. Now the child, knowing that a spanking is coming, if he doesn't obey, st- stood up and he stomped out of the room and as he was going he was heard to murmur I may be doing it on the outside but on the inside I'm still watching TV um, you, you know we, we, we can sometimes laugh and it may seem funny to hear a statement like that but you know that is a problem in obedience in fact uh, it seems like Solomon knew that one of our dangers is we could just we can just do the law, but not have it in our heart. And so the challenge is, as a Christian, in fact, uh, if you want to be a right testimony and prove you're a Christian, it's not just outwardly doing the right things, but it's doing the right things with a right heart. Um, do you know a problem with preaching? That godliness is related to personal standards or conviction? The, the problem is not preaching that a young man ought not have long hair or a young lady ought to dress modestly or that people shouldn't listen to the wrong kind of music. The problem isn't saying that your activities ought to be tested by the word and done only if they're right and good. The problem is when we measure someone's spirituality by only what they're doing on the outside. The Bible tells us, and we know this, and it's quoted so often sometimes by those who want to justify their doing whatever they want to do, man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And that's true, isn't it? Now, there's really two truths there. The first thing is men, men do look on the outward appearance, and what you do on the outside is important. And by the way, this passage tells us what you do on the outside is important. Forget not my law. Obey it. Do it. Follow it. Okay? But the other side to that and the other part of that and the other aspect is to make sure that when you do it, your heart is right. Make sure that you're doing it with the right inside because external standards don't prove a person's right with God. External standards 
will follow someone whose heart is right. But it's not a guarantee. May we be people who obey in heart what God has commanded. So look at the reward. For length of days, long life and peace shall they add to thee. What does that mean? Does that mean every Christian who walks this way is going to live a long life? Well, then we got a problem, don't we? I mean, we have people in Bible times, most of the apostles died early. Stephen was one of the first martyrs, and as best we know, he wasn't an old man when he was stoned in Acts chapter 8, isn't it? Uh, so, so then how do we answer that, and, and what happens? I mean, is that just an Old Testament pro- promise? Did this proverb fail? No. So let me explain it. In, in one of, really, there's two ways to explain this. First, not all proverbs are guarantees, but they're basic truths, right? We've already looked at this. We've mentioned this fact. Not every proverb is a promise you can claim, and it's an absolute, because proverbs are maxims, wise sayings that hold general truth. And they weren't intended to be understood that everyone, in every sense and every time, is going to live to be an old man. There's a second understanding, though, And uh, it could be just that this was a proverb, but we could argue as well that this is a promise. If we understand these phrases in the sense that one will live all the days God has planned for them to live, and that those those days will be lived to the full. In fact, that seems to be the idea of verse 2, length of days. In other words, hey, look, if I live in sin... If I forget God's law and I live my own way, doing my own thing, following my own path, then let me tell you something, that will cut short my days. It will. Now, we can't look at someone who has died young and say it was because they were in sin. All right? We got to be very careful we don't do that because we don't know. And God has a plan for everyone's life. But what we can say is this, that when someone is walking with God, they will live a full life, the full amount of days that God has intended for their life. They will. And that those days won't have regrets. Because when I, from the heart, obey God's commands, um, I will enjoy life to the fullest of its capacity, because that's how God intended for men to walk. So may we find the great blessing. And by the way, since long life, and someone even wrote this, uh, long life might bring heartache and sorrow. Have you ever thought about that? You say, I'm obedient to God, but then long life, you know, someone gets cancer and they live in, if you would, misery for the last five years of their, their life and their existence. And, and quite frankly, it would be gracious had the Lord taken them home a lot earlier. But the Lord's got to give them long days. That's not necessarily the idea of this passage. But what he adds, and I love this, is that God adds the promise of peace. Um, A life of usefulness to God, a full life, a life of peace with God is added to the Christian who from the heart obeys the commands of of God. Um, So then then why why is Christianity sometimes marked by miserable Christians? Have you ever wondered? It's like, 
what is wrong? And sometimes I think maybe it's because we've taught that all that's important is the external. And we have strayed from making sure we love God with our heart. Does anyone find a challenge in these first two verses? I do. And then he goes on. He says, let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Um, I'm going to give you a statement. It may sound a little strange, but uh, it's, it's the outline I give you. All right. So imitate the Lord to find grace. Imitate the Lord to find grace, verses 3 and 4. Now, you say, why did you say imitate the Lord? Well, let me tell you the reason. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Bible says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Do you know how that verse ends? You do know it. Full of grace and truth. Our Lord Jesus Christ was the wonderful, he was the epitome of mercy and truth. And so uh, I, I wrote the first statement in light of what we find written about Jesus Christ because he does epitomize what is the challenge, or the challenge is found in verse 3. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. In Proverbs 16:6, we read these words. In fact, by the way, uh, many of these uh, principles laid out in these verses are found in other Proverbs, and we'll get to them, and we'll hit some of them later on. Proverbs 16:6 says, By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. Uh, and so imitate the Lord. Be like him. Uh, allow God to purge sin out by having a life full of mercy and truth. Someone wrote, two elements of a morally perfect character are mercy, which is shutting out all forms of selfishness and hate, and truth, shutting out all deliberate falsehood, all hypocrisy, conscious or unconscious. Being kind as one does what is right is the expectation of verse 3. Um, and uh, don't let either go. I love it. He says, let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Do you understand why these two are important together? Um, mercy and truth are inseparable qualities. And what I mean by that is if you have one without the other, it's dangerous and hurtful. So let me explain it. Some people have no mercy, but their life is full of truth. You, you know what they're like? Dictators. Bless God, we're going to do this because it's right. No, I'm not going to have mercy. Get in the room. 8,000 lashes, you know, or whatever it may be. Uh, a person who has all truth and no mercy is indeed a, a dangerous person. They're often, we might use the word militant to describe these people. Now, there's the other side to this, where a person has just mercy. 
They're always kind. And they let people get away with things. You know why? Because, well, I just don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And, and you know, everyone deserves a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance and a sixth chance and a 37th chance. And, and just understand, if, if we just... If we would just um, give them more opportunities, they'll come around. And that as well. Some are kind and compassionate toward their fellow men, but they're weak in truth. And those people are compromisers, at least in many cases. And so when the Bible says Jesus was full of grace and truth, when he had both these, these gifts, grace, by the way, is, is kindness, all right? Same, many of the, much of the same definition as mercy in the Old Testament. And as Christ had these qualities, they were in perfect balance so that justice would be done, but mercy would also be shown. And I'll tell you something, balancing those and having those in a right perspective, in, in right balance is difficult. But God reminds us in this passage, in this little couplet, how important mercy and truth is to your life. Bind them about your neck. Write them on the table of your heart. Just make this a priority. You say, well, well, why? Well, look if you would. He said, so shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and men. Uh, when we look at the life of Jesus, we find a man who was looked on favorably by God and man, at least godly men. Right? Uh, listen to Luke 2.52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The reward of having these qualities ruling within, this balance of mercy and truth, the reward of that is gracious favor with God and with men because the Lord is well pleased when I have that balance of I'm going to follow truth, but I also am going to couple that with mercy. And, um, and that is indeed a wonderful quality in life. So do you have those things? Um, do you have uh, mercy and truth? Uh, and I say, well, I'm all right. I'm good on the mercy side. Okay, then you, you probably need some truth. You know, say, oh, I'm good on the truth side. All right, then you probably need some mercy. And I would think if you evaluate your life, uh, you're pr probably going to find one or the other is over is overpowering. And so may we be people who understand the importance of both and seek to have both in life. Two of the six are found in these first four verses, and they are indeed important things because they talk about uh, our, our walk with God, the walk of a righteous man. The righteous man obeys the Lord and enjoys the, the fruit of that, uh, of that life. A righteous man imitates God. He has mercy and truth balanced in his life and filling his life, and he finds grace with God and with men. And we'll have opportunity to look at some verses we've already looked at. Pull out the message from a few weeks ago on Sunday morning. But uh, we're going to be challenged about trusting in the Lord with all our heart. Another very important principle for someone who wants to walk with God. I uh, hope you'll take some time and read through these 12 things and really think through the six uh, different uh, 
quality and qualities and characteristics of someone that walks with God, a righteous man. Father, thank you for your word.